Past Dark is intended for adults only. Listener discretion is advised. Have you ever had a bad feeling? Maybe you're walking home one night in a street you've traveled down a hundred times without any problem. Suddenly feels like a bad idea. Or maybe you've just met your new neighbor, a man who seems perfectly pleasant. But something tells you to make sure that your doors are always locked and your curtains always closed. Most of us at some point in our lives will experience a certainty that we cannot explain that guides us away from danger, a warning whispering to us to take another way home, or another home entirely. Gavin de Becker, the author and renowned security specialist, calls this the gift of fear, a protective sense that knows something our conscious minds do not, something available to all of us, if we only listen. But what if you did listen? What if you knew something terrible was coming, but you didn't know how to stop it? And worst of all, what if you were a child? Lindsay Baum, Catherine Hobbs, and Joel Robinson would all tell their loved ones in the days and sometimes months before their murders about their own bad feelings. The dread was so pervasive and carried such a certainty to Catherine Hobbs that she wrote letters for everyone in her family to be opened upon her death, sure that she would not live to the age of 16. Jill Robinson had recurring and eerily specific nightmares of such severity that she was put into therapy months before her eventual murder at the age of 12, exactly as she foresaw in her recurring dream. And 24 hours before Lindsay Baum vanished, the normally upbeat and bubbly 10-year-old confessed to her mother, Mom, I just have this really bad feeling that something bad's gonna happen. She vanished the next day on June the 26th, 2009. How do you know when the ordinary fears and nightmares of childhood are actually a warning? How do you know that the monster in the closet isn't really there? This is a tale of tragedy and strange knowledge, of dark visions and real monsters. This is a story of three girls who knew, and it's past dark. Lindsay Baum was a typical ten-year-old in the first decade of the 21st century. She was a fan of Twilight and Harry Potter. She had her own cell phone, 
as well as her own MySpace page, where she had altered her age to circumvent the minimum requirement. She was smart, spunky, even a little bit tough. The locals in the small town of McCleary, Washington, where she had relocated to from Tennessee with her mother after her parents' divorce, considered her a fixture, with one even calling her the obvious leader of her pack of friends. In her photos, she strikes you as a confident, even impish child, a kid who isn't likely to go willingly into the night with a stranger, the sort of kid who might, in an alternate universe, have been featured on the news for outwitting her captor and escaping unharmed. But in this world, her ending was very different. It was within a small window of time on the evening of June 26, 2009, that Lindsay Baum vanished. Walking just a few blocks home on a warm summer night, she had spent the day at a friend's pool party, then headed to another friend's house with her brother, hoping to get together for a sleepover. When those plans fell through, she decided to set off back home, alone, at about 9.15 at night. Her mother, Melissa, worried that Lindsay hadn't shown by 9.45, began calling her, thinking to herself, this is why we paid for you to have a cell phone. Pick up. But she didn't. Melissa would then discover the phone left behind, plugged into a charger in their home. After her phone calls to various friends proved fruitless, and the panic setting in, she phoned the police at around 11 o'clock that night. It would be the beginning of a long odyssey of searches, tips that went nowhere, and the hope, buoyed by other cases of missing children who were discovered alive years later, that Lindsay's disappearance would be one of the few to have a happy ending. That hope would be brought crashing back to Earth in 2018. In a remote area outside of Ellensburg, Washington, about three hours from McCleary, Hunters in the autumn of 2017 stumbled upon a human skull. Confirmation would be delayed for months as it worked its way to the head of a long backlog of material awaiting DNA testing, which eventually concluded that the skull belonged to Lindsay. Nearly nine years ago, that sheriff, Rick Scott, told us he feared this Lindsay bomb case would haunt him the rest of his career. And today, he had to deliver the news no one wanted to hear. I'm here today to share with you that we've brought Lindsay home. Sadly, she was not recovered as we and her family had hoped and prayed these last nine years. In June of 2009, police, the National Guard, the FBI, Missing child. and countless volunteers Thanks a lot. started searching for Lindsay Baum. The 10-year-old, who loved writing poems and reading, disappeared while walking home from her friend's house in McClary. Sheriff Rick Scott says while the outcome is sad, 
He hopes this new development in an old case will help solve the mystery. Somebody out there has that nugget of information that we need to bring this case to complete closure and culminate in an arrest. We urge those people to have the courage to come forward. The area was thoroughly searched, with investigators refusing to discuss any further findings, but alluding to certain discoveries they hope may eventually solve the case. But the online amateur investigation community would begin their own speculation just days after her disappearance, which led many to discover Lindsay's MySpace page. This remaining commentary and copy-pasting on forums such as WebSleuths are the only traces that remain, and the profile was eventually taken down. But at the time, some noted that a couple of her posts were made at times when a child of 10 should have been in bed. For example, 4 a.m. Others noted that her overall tone was a bit more world-weary and adult than one would expect from someone so young, but that in and of itself could merely be the bravado and bluster of a kid in a hurry to grow up. But one post stood out from the others. In May, a month prior to her disappearance, she noted her mood as disturbed and wrote... I've had a lot of nightmares lately, and I got a bad feeling that something bad is going to happen. Her mother would report Lindsay saying the exact same thing the day before her disappearance. And she had complained in the month prior that a man in a white car was following her. She knew something was coming, but she didn't know what, Melissa said. And then she was gone. A child whose parents have recently gone through a divorce would naturally be vulnerable to at least a little anxiety. Lindsay, according to her mother, was also afraid of the dark, a fairly typical fear for a ten-year-old. But the disturbing gravity and repeated mentions of a sense that something dark was headed her way is not something we can easily pass off as the garden-variety worries of an average ten-year-old. And it begs the question, was she already in the crosshairs of the person who would dump her body in a remote forest three hours away? Were her fears and nightmares a warning or a coincidence? We will most likely never get an answer to these questions until her killer is finally found. As of January 2020, there is still no resolution. The unsolved murder of a child is the kind of case every parent, and every detective, dreads. But a series of four is a crushing blow, a psychic wound that never heals. The Oakland County child killings are just such a wound. Between February of 1976 and March of 1977, Timothy King, 11, Mark Stebbins, 12, Christine Mihalich, 10, and Jill Robinson, 12, 
were all kidnapped from townships in the area known as the Woodward Corridor and held for at least four days prior to their murders. The boys were sexually assaulted, but not the girls. All the children appeared to have been kept inside for the duration of their abductions, and all were found fully clothed, dumped along roadsides where they would be easily discovered. The bodies appeared to have been washed in an apparent attempt to eradicate any forensic evidence, their nails cleaned, and then redressed in their own clothes, which also appeared to have been cleaned. Timothy King, whose mother had mentioned to the press about the particulars of his favorite meal, had eaten the same meal, Kentucky Fried Chicken, about an hour before his murder. These details led some in the press to dub the perpetrator the babysitter. But no one had any idea that a serial killer was stalking the Woodward Corridor on December the 22nd, 1976, when Jill Robinson and her mother Carol were in the midst of an argument over Jill's obstinate refusal to complete her chores. The fight escalated, and Carol and a move that she would live to regret, told her daughter that if she didn't want to uphold her end of the family responsibilities, then she needed to get out. The sixth grader stuffed a backpack with some clothes and toiletries and decided to bike to her father's house in nearby Birmingham, about five miles away down Woodward Avenue. Jill had had a tough time in the past year. Her mother had decided to move from Detroit to the safer suburb of Royal Oak in September, and the change seemed to trigger something in her oldest daughter, who suddenly became anxious and temperamental. It could have been merely adolescent rebellion, were it not for the nightmares. They were frequent and eerily specific, and all of them, she dreamt of her own murder, and always in the same manner, by a gunshot to the face. Her entire family, including her younger sisters, bore witness to Jill's terror, as night after night they awoke to screams, and her exhausted parents would spend hours in talking her through her panic, which was so severe that they finally enlisted the help of a therapist. She would say, I know this is not logical. Jill's extremely perceptive, very, very intelligent. And she'd say, Mom, I'm afraid of something. And I'd say, what is it? And she'd say, well, the kids are coming home. She said, I am afraid that, um, that somebody is going to come around the car. On a cor- like if I'm standing on the corner, I feel like somebody's going to come around the corner in a car and I have a gun and they're going to shoot me. Her parents had been divorced for a few years at that point, and her new neighborhood did not suffer the same crime rate, or indeed much crime at all, as had their old Detroit environs. Her fears could not be so easily placed upon the head of either of these causes, but with the help of therapy, Jill began to calm. But then came the argument just three days before Christmas, 
one that all of us who have successfully navigated the perils of adolescence can probably relate to, and might have had with one of our own parents, or even our own children. But this time, those perils would become a tragedy. Somewhere on the cold and dark five-mile bike ride down Woodward Avenue, Jill was taken. Her disappearance was treated as a runaway, hardly surprising given the circumstance. And unfortunately, it is unlikely that any search party, no matter how early they had set out, would have been able to bring Jill home safe. Someone took her off of a busy street, leaving her bike behind, and spirited her away to an unknown location where she was fed, kept seemingly relatively comfortable until the day after Christmas. On Sunday, December 26th, Joe Robinson would be found. A motorist driving north on I-75 around 6 a.m. noticed what he thought was a body lying beside the freeway near Big Beaver Road in Troy. He radioed the location on his CB. That broadcast was monitored by Troy police who went to the scene. The police determined that Joe Robinson was killed at the scene, shot in the face with a single blast from a 16-gauge shotgun. The shot used was that commonly used by hunters. The time of death was between 3 and 6 a.m. It had begun snowing at about that time, and the snow on the body was about as deep as the fresh snow on the ground. Jill's death was in marked contrast to Mark Stebbins' murder in February of the same year. Besides the obvious difference in mode of death, there was no molestation in Jill's case, no sign of ligature marks or violence apart from the fatal gunshot wound. But the similarities in holding the children for days, the clean clothes, the dumping along a roadside after a heavy snow where they would easily be found, were all distinctive enough to link the cases and were just the kind of haunting details that would resonate in the memories of an entire generation. A resonance that has found no conclusion. But several compelling suspects have emerged over the years, and it is also a fact that a pedophile ring was operating in the Cass Corridor neighborhood of Detroit at the time. But there has never been any evidence that linked them to these killings. There are also several other murders of children in the same time period that could expand the total, and there are DNA samples available that, were they finally disconnect to a living person, could finally bring some kind of justice to the families of these children, and perhaps others that have yet to be connected. Sometimes, justice doesn't happen in this world. Sometimes we have to settle for answers, rather than closure. Such is the case with Catherine Hobbs. This sweet, bookish 16-year-old was just beginning to enjoy her life after a difficult start. Her parents divorced when she was eight, and her mother described Kathy's childhood as an unhappy one. She had an early lesson in the fragility of life in the seventh grade when a close friend died of a heart condition. The loss was difficult for Kathy, 
and her mother decided to make a new start in Las Vegas, moving from Oakland, California with Kathy and her sister Teresa, with a hope that the change would be healthy for her daughter. And, while Kathy seemed to prosper and make new friends with ease, she had long held the belief that she was doomed to die at a young age. Around the time of her parents' divorce, she began telling friends and family that she knew she would not live to the age of 16. Far from being a momentary fancy, she mentioned it many times over the years, her conviction difficult to reconcile with her youth. Her fears seemed to revivify themselves under any kind of stress, and one night not long before her 16th birthday, a tearful Kathy had a long conversation with her mother, Vivian. Mom, I don't want to grow up. I want to stay a little girl. Her mother patiently explained that it didn't quite work like that that we were all fated to grow whether we wanted to or not. But Kathy was adamant. I'm not going to. She grew more anxious and retreated into herself as her 16th birthday approached, refusing to leave her room for long periods of time. But then came April the 20th, 1987, her 16th birthday. And to no one's shock but her own, Kathy was still alive. She bounded out of her room that morning, telling her mother, I did it. I made it. It seemed to put an end to her fears, and she began discussing plans for the future, talking about someday opening her own beauty salon that she wanted to call Cat's Cuts. She began to be social again, hanging out around the pool in the complex where she lived with her mother and sister, even walking alone to a nearby supermarket to buy the romance novels she devoured. And on the night of July the 23rd, 1987, at around 11 p.m., she decided to take the same block and a half trek to buy another novel. Her mother, Vivian, recalled that Kathy asked her for a kiss before she left, and Vivian said, Why? I'll be up when you get back. But Kathy said she may stop and talk to the kids at the pool, and that her mother might be in bed by the time that she got back. So, she gave her daughter a kiss, and it was the last time she saw her alive. Vivian went to bed shortly after, feeling no particular apprehension until something awoke her at 3 a.m. I woke up out of a sound sleep, she said. I felt like I had been hit on the head. And all of a sudden, a peaceful feeling and I thought, it's over now, and I fell back to sleep. It wasn't until the next morning that Vivian discovered her daughter's bed hadn't been slept in. She spent the rest of the morning making frantic phone calls to family and friends, but none had seen her daughter since the previous evening. 
Lieutenant Kyle Edwards mentioned in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which covered the case, that an extensive media campaign was launched after the second day, as they were sure by that time that Kathy had probably been abducted. But strangely, none of my research has unearthed any contemporary news articles or mentions of Kathy's abduction or murder. The only mention from the time that I could find was a death notice from the Reno Gazette Journal in Reno, Nevada, dated August the 5th, 1987, which mentions that Catherine Hobbs, 16, was found dead on Saturday in Las Vegas. This begs the question, was Kathy's disappearance treated as a runaway? She was 16, certainly a prime age for such a scenario. If there was extensive media coverage, one would expect some trace to remain. Regardless, the strange omission in coverage for a missing minor sits uncomfortably with the detective's own words. Nevertheless, this same detective would be the first to arrive on the scene nine days later, when hiker Rick Picolt was hiking near Lake Mead, searching for rock crystals. What he found instead was the body of Kathy Hobbs. It was the most horrible thing I had ever seen in my life, he said. I had to sit down and gather my thoughts and make sure that what I was looking at was real. The scene of the discovery also seemed to be the location of her murder, as investigators found two blood-stained stones nearby that matched her wounds. Vivian's strange dream came back to her when she realized her daughter had died by being struck repeatedly in the head. She was 16 years, 3 months, and 3 days old when she died, the mother said. She made it to 16, but not much after that. But she was right. She wasn't going to live to be an adult. Kathy and her mother's premonitions were eerie enough. But after her daughter's death, Vivian would find a number of letters her daughter had written one month before her 16th birthday. All of them were to be given to their recipients upon Kathy's death. Her mother's letter read, Dear Mother, In the event of my death, you shall get this letter. I hope you live happily, and I don't want you or anyone else to dwell on my death. I love you all dearly. You were good to me, and nobody else could have been a better mother. Keep me alive in your heart, and don't ever forget me. Love always, Kathy. Her death would remain a mystery until the mid-90s, when serial killer and drifter Michael Lee Lockhart would confess to her murder, after a number of blue fibers found on her body were linked to a car Lockhart owned at the time. His credit card receipts also placed him in Las Vegas, and two of his victims bear a striking resemblance to Kathy. When detectives confronted him with the evidence, he confessed 
almost immediately. The charges were not brought due to his already earning multiple death sentences for other murders in Indiana, Texas, and Florida. It is possible that Lockhart has killed more than 20 people, but officially, at least, Kathy Hobbs is not one of them. He would be executed in Texas on December the 9th, 1997. For all those curious enough to dive deeper into the endless rabbit hole that is the case of the Oakland County child murders, I would recommend Nina Instead's excellent multi-part podcast, Don't Talk to Strangers, for its thoughtful and in-depth handling of the case, as well as her compelling regular series, Already Gone, which covers Michigan's Unsolved. Past Dark is written and produced by Carmen Park. Original music by Skillpack.